Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the state of the British economy after the Brexit vote and dissecting the government's decision to build a third runway at Heathrow Airport. I'm delighted to be joined by Janan Ganesh, the FT's political columnist, Martin Wolfe, our chief economics commentator, plus two former Conservative special advisers, Rupert Harrison, who was at the Treasury and now at BlackRock, and Julian Gover, who used to work at the Department for Transport. Thank you all for joining. So, how is the British economy doing? This week, there are some signs that it is bumping along relatively nicely after June's vote to leave the EU. The latest GDP figures show that the economy has grown by about 0.5%, which was better than expected. It was also good news that Nissan is not only going to build its new Qashqai model in its Sunland plant, but also bring the X-Trail SUV too. Plus, Toyota announced it is committed to car building in the UK, even if trading conditions worse. So generally, it all appears to be good news for Brexit Britain. But is it really that simple? So, Martin Wolf, you were one of the people who was sceptical about the economic impact of leaving the EU. We have not left the EU, so it's very key to note that. But were you buoyed at all by the news this week, and what lessons does it tell us? I think it's clear that the figures we now have for the third quarter's GDP, which we should emphasise are preliminary, but probably they won't vary that much from what we've heard, are better than quite a few people feared, certainly than I feared, and that's good. It's important to note it indicates continuing momentum above all in the service sector, which is, of course, the one that is likely to be least affected overall since it's predominantly domestically oriented by whatever changes are going to happen on the international side, which is going to be most affected by Brexit. The other sectors were essentially stagnant or declining, including manufacturing. So it's encouraging, but it's incredibly early days. It's still the possibility of a significant change in investment, which I expect, and those are decisions that will probably be only just taken is going to start affecting GDP figures in coming quarters. So we're going to have to look at that very closely. And of course, we haven't started the negotiations. And it is important to stress that, of course, we've had one very big adjustment already, which is the currency. I think that's helpful to get through the adjustment. But it's also clearly a very substantial real loss. And it's without a doubt going to affect inflation, uh, at least in the short to medium term, that will make challenges for the Bank of England, and it will almost certainly reduce real incomes. That's the biggest cost I can see at the moment from what's happened. Rupert Harrison, what did you make of the growth figures that there were these Treasury predictions, which was the immediate shock, which said it was going to be minus 1%, 0.1%, that kind of thing. That obviously hasn't come to pass. So a lot of people are crowing at the moment, oh, well, it's all going to be fine and uh, well, out of the woods. But as Martin said, nothing's actually changed yet. And it's not quite as good news as it first seems on the surface. Well, I think we have to conclude that the forecasts for the early impact were wrong. There's no way around it. I think there were several reasons for that. I think that a lot of people underestimated the momentum in the economy. I think the strength of the consumer and household balance sheets is still very 
strong. Ironically, in a sense, actually, I think in this recent quarter, we'll probably, when we get the final data, see that the financial services sector is picking out the results we're seeing from some of the banks, which is a global issue, improving. I think that that might be the opposite direction to the longer term structural impact on the financial services sector. But I think we are learning that the impact of Brexit is not a zero. I think that Martin's right, particularly looking at investment intentions, the outlook for construction, and some of those things going into 2017. So I think the impact's going to be more of a long, slow drag rather than a short, sharp shock. But it's still hugely uncertain. We're very early in this process, and much of it will depend on announcements from the government. And you know, I think this Nissan announcement is a very interesting one about what can we learn about the way that Brexit is heading and the way that the policy which is going to drive all this is heading. So let's pick up on the Nissan announcements. This was seen as a bit of a boon for UK manufacturing because there were very big questions about would it continue to invest in its Sunderland plant? Would it move production elsewhere in Europe? They've seemed to be doubling down on that. And this is a result of a meeting that the chief executive of Nissan had with the Prime Minister and there were these reassurances given. Now Downing Street are very keen to say they did not promise anything but they simply laid out their Brexit plan and reassured them about that. Now the suggestions from some have been that this is an indication we're going to remain in the customs union for example which is obviously going to make Liam Fox's job a bit harder in negotiating trade deals. What do you think Rupert was said in that meeting that would have said Nissan okay we're going to stick with the UK and we're going to put even more production here? Well I think there's two issues there's how much can you extrapolate from Nissan? Everyone's trying to extrapolate well, a lot. A lot, the because moment. it's the one data point we have. I mean, I'm not an expert in the car manufacturing industry, but from talking to people, I think there were some specific issues with Nissan. They are very committed to the UK. They were quite far advanced in these plans. So plans that other inward investors are making over a longer time period, they might have more chance to build up alternatives to the UK. So we shouldn't over-extrapolate. I think the interesting question, as you say, about the commitment that the government made is, what commitment can the government make to Nissan that Nissan would find credible? To my mind, they cannot at this stage make credible commitments about the single market because I don't think if I were Nissan I could not believe anything the government says because we don't know what the strategy is we don't know what will be available I think they can make credible commitments about tariffs and I think that's probably the key thing is that that totally destroys the business model for Nissan being in the UK interesting question on the customs union I would expect us to pull out of the customs union in large part there seems to be talk about whether you can maintain a customs union in some industries sort of the turkey model I believe now I don't know whether you can carve out something as specific as auto manufacturing it would be very interesting to me if Nissan felt that pulling out of the customs union were acceptable. I think that would be a useful piece of information about how disruptive that might be. I'm not aware, and I used to follow trade quite closely, of any country which is partly in a customs union and otherwise in a free trade area. What it would mean is that different sectors would face completely different bureaucratic systems. And I think that the sectors that are excluded from this glad and happy situation will be very, very angry because the burdens they would face in proving in a free trade area context that they have the right origin, the, the rules of origin of their products would be very burdensome to have. Somebody else in a customs union would be very strange, and it would mean that Liam Fox could then only negotiate in the areas of the free trade area, as it were, not on the customs union. Basically, historically, you're always in the customs union or you're not. I don't know what the Prime Minister said to Nissan. I presume she said something like, it's going to be okay. And it is important to remember for Nissan that it has a very large sunk cost in the UK, a long history. It will want to stay. The currency, if it remains like this, offsets a lot of tariffs. It's a big depreciation, so it's a big competitiveness advantage. And they might well take the view, let's wait and see. They could say, look, the Prime Minister promised that we'd be looked after. Two years from now, we're out in the cold. The situation is different. We're not being looked after and we're going to change our mind. I think the option for them to do so is always there. 
Absolutely. And looking forward to the autumn statement now, Rupert, which is coming up in a few weeks. This is going to be Philip Hammond's first big pronouncement as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And there was hints coming out of the Treasury that there was going to be a change. And obviously, the budget surplus has already been jettisoned by the government and there might be some other fiscal stimulus in the pipeline. And given what we've seen now, do you think that's still going to happen? And what sort of things do you think Philip Hammond might talk about or what sort of things might he introduce differently, given the state of where we are with the economy after the Brexit vote? I think we'll definitely see a change of tone and style. Uh, on the substance, I think it will be, with maybe one or two exceptions, mainly continuity. And indeed, the Treasury in particular have been, in recent weeks, kind of rowing back from some of the early expectations about a splurge, as they put it, uh, this autumn. I think on the surplus, it's very important to note that actually they have not jettisoned the surplus. So Theresa May said very early on at one of her early Prime Minister's questions, we're still committed to a, a balanced budget. Within uh, 2020, sorry. Yes, yeah, so the, they've, they've jettisoned the date, um, which actually George Osborne had done even before Theresa May became Prime Minister. I would expect Philip Hammond probably to keep that ambition to run a balanced budget. He may or may not put a date on it. And that is quite a big constraint on what he can do. And I suspect that he will also want to keep his powder dry a little bit because of the uncertainty over the economic numbers. He's got a budget in March, probably. That's not very far away. So he's got a second bite at the kind of macro decisions. I would expect a little bit of additional spending on infrastructure, but I think we are talking single figure billions. So that's less than half a percent of GDP in annual additional infrastructure spending. Now that can be very significant for specific projects and over time can be significant as a structural improvement to the economy but I don't think it's big enough to be significant from a macroeconomic point of view. Martin what are your expectations for the autumn statement? Do they align with Rupert's? And on what I think will happen I think Rupert is right and I suspect his information is better than mine too but in any case he's been worked on by the Treasury The situation is we have a large deficit. The situation is we have to maintain the confidence of the world's investors. And we've been doing things in the last year which has not supported their confidence, and the currency shows that. So I think they have to be pretty cautious. One of the great rules in economics is don't give a target and a date. So getting off the target of the surplus in a given year is comfortable. They will target it at the end of their five-year period, or whatever it means, probably be five-year period, and keep on doing so. That's fine. Uh, But it does constrain what they can do. And there is an additional factor here beyond confidence, which is the exchange rate has depreciated a long way. The evidence seems to suggest that we're close to full employment. This means that, in theory, we could be generating quite a lot of inflationary pressure, not just the one-off effect, because we're going to have more resources going to the trade goods sector and services sector because of the exchange rate. That means that other things equal standard economics suggests fiscal policy should be relatively tight. I would be saying the same thing in this situation. So for this reason, too, I expect the Treasury to be pretty cautious. Yeah, I think that the more difficult judgment really is for the Bank of England rather than for the Treasury, because this inflationary impulse is very difficult for them to judge whether they should be looking through that. They have the ability to look through that. Their remit allows them to say explicitly, we're going to have a longer time period where we're going to tolerate inflation above 2%. And we're going to focus more on our concerns about the demand side and the impact of uncertainty on investment. But we don't know how big that inflationary impulse is going to be. And if the data does hold up, better than expected. If Nissan is a sign of things to come, then they might start to be worried about having done too much. So I think there's a much more delicate judgment for them. I think the Treasury's judgment for now is a relatively simple one. Uh, Martin and I seem to agree for once on fiscal policy, <laughs> at least in the short term, that steady as she goes is probably a sensible strategy for yeah. now. I mean, I actually, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year, 
uh, we actually see the Bank of England tighten. I'm not forecasting, but it's not at all impossible because they'll begin to worry about a wage price spiral in this situation. I mean, it's not probable, but it's certainly possible. The other event that we had this week, Martin, was uh, Mark Carney appeared in front of the House of Lords, I believe the Economic Select Committee, and they were talking about his future. And there's a big question mark over this about how long he's going to remain governor of the Bank of England. And many on the right of the Conservative Party have been calling for him to head back to Canada and not remain there because they saw him as acting out of turn during the EU referendum and that sort of thing. If he was to go, that would have a pretty negative effect on confidence, do you think? Well, it certainly would have a risk. It would be perceived as a very political move and he would be seen as having to be got rid of because he's politically embarrassing, i.e. not doing exactly what the current power brokers want. Of course, that's because he's also seen as having been too close to the previous ones. There are always these difficulties. It would depend, I think, honestly, on how this happened, because he doesn't have to continue, and it's always his option to go because it's so uncomfortable. And then there's the key issue of who they would replace him with. My own view is there is no credible candidate, and that's quite an important problem. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember he originally committed to five years and he has the option of extending it to eight because that's what's in the legislation. And he said he's going to tell Parliament by the end of the year. I mean, I think if he did just stay with the five years, I don't think that would be catastrophic. I mean, I do think that the people attacking him, I think it's very unwise. He is an important asset for the UK at this point. He's a source of stability, competence and confidence. And uh, this is exactly the kind of time where you want monetary policy to have the freedom to operate. I mean, to be honest, I would take what he said at the Lord's Select Committee at face value. I think he's perfectly big enough to handle a few people sniping at him from the sidelines. I don't think that will really trouble him. I think it's really for him a personal decision. He's got his family living here and he will make a decision ultimately about whether it's five or eight. And if it's done in that way, I don't think the markets will be unduly concerned. And he is highly rated abroad and very well known. And in a point at which the world feels what is going on in the UK... He is a point of stability. Absolutely. Not indispensable. Nobody is. But he is a point of stability. And it's very dangerous for politicians to attack the central bank. It undermines them. And actually, it makes their job very difficult. And very briefly, since I know how much you like having targets and dates, Martin, (laughs) at which point do you think we can stand back and say, OK, this is where the economy is at? Because if we said it's too soon to say that now, is that going to be the end of this year? Is that going to be next year? At which point would you feel comfortable making a judgment on the state of the economy post the Brexit vote, even not post Brexit, that's many years away? Well, if I were giving a facetious answer, it would be about 2030, because by then we should have a really good idea of the deal and its impact. And in some sense, that's not being facetious. This is a major strategic change. It will carry through very large changes in the British economic environment, and it is going to take that long. It took about 15 years to work out what Thatcherism did to the UK. I mean, mid-90s, we began to see what it was doing. This is almost as big a change. But in terms of the short-run impact, but no, before we go through the Brexit process, by the middle of next year, we should have a pretty good idea about the short-run impact. Yeah, I agree with that. On the short-run impact, yeah, we probably need a year of data. Particularly what we don't have is very good data yet on investment and corporate behaviour, and that is what we need. And we should have a pretty good picture of that by the middle of next year. As Martin says, the longer-run productivity impact, will, um, yeah, we just need to look to more Chinese timescales of uh, multi-decades. <laughs> It was deja vu on infrastructure this week as the government finally announced that it was going to build a third runway at Heathrow Airport to the surprise of absolutely no one. 
Listeners with longer memories will recall that a previous government already backed this decision and even voted for it at the end of 2009. The policy then fell into the weeds when David Cameron became Prime Minister. Another couple of years were spent procrastinating with an airports commission and much hand-wringing only to get back exactly where we are. So, what happens now and will the runway ever be built? Julian Glover, as a former special advisor to the Secretary of State for Transport, I'm sure you sat through many long and interesting meetings about Heathrow and infrastructure in the UK. Do you think the third runway will ever be built? I think there's a really good chance now. I'm quite surprised to be saying that. I didn't expect it to be quite as clear a decision. I thought there might be some fudging, there might be some little promise of Gatwick or a nod to Birmingham. It was pretty straightforward. The government said it's the right place, it should go ahead, we're going to put out a national policy statement, we'll have a vote in Parliament. I think it will happen if the finance stays in place, if Brexit doesn't kill travel, if people want to invest in it. It's as good a chance as they've been for a long time. It certainly feels more finite than in the past and it's obviously not an easy thing because we've got this long process which is drawing up the MPS which is about a month or so I believe. Then another 16 week public consultation, another 12 week select committee appearance and then a vote in Parliament will come on to in a moment. But do you think it's going to change much substantially from what we've heard, this runway on some kind of ramp over the M25 and two new terminals and all the rest of it? Well, it isn't designed yet. It's a bit like deciding to build a new kitchen and then get the planners in later and work out where the dishwasher's going to go. So what is actually built is not quite clear. It looks like it'll be a full-length runway, although, of course, if costs go too high, they could build a shorter one as they plan to in 2009. This ramp is a bit of a spurious thing. When it was going to be a tunnel, everybody said, you can't tunnel the M25, so they said, we could build a bridge, and now they say, you can't have a bridge. The slope of the runway is about one degree, apparently less than Birmingham Airport. Uh, When I've landed at Birmingham, I didn't notice it was uphill like an aircraft carrier. But the design does matter, and that's yet to happen. And the key bit of that is how much it costs, because in the end, it's got to be paid for by two things. One is overseas investors wanting to buy a trophy asset in Britain and just own something big and concrete and shiny. The other is passengers flying on aeroplanes, and the airlines are going to be very tough about the costs. They do not want shiny new terminals. They want tarmac and somewhere to put the plane in a bus to get the passengers off. Because ultimately that is going to be a problem for Heathrow, that if it ends up being very expensive, that will then get passed onto the airlines and then they will just shunt their flight elsewhere. So you've got a slightly white elephant situation there. I think Heathrow will always be full. Uh, whether other airports are full, or whether Heathrow just takes traffic away from other airports is a debate. Heathrow, the demand looks like it's big enough to support a price of 20, 20 something pounds a passenger, which is what it is at the moment. And no, actually, conversely, it's not a problem for Heathrow. Heathrow would like it to be really expensive because they make a return on the asset base. So the bigger the asset base, the regulator will give them percentage return. So it's in their interest to try and spend a lot of money. It's in the airline's interest to try and bully Heathrow into not spending the money. And that's going to be quite a complex and quite a boring discussion for the next few years. This is the thing with infrastructure, Janan, that it's never the most interesting thing, but it interests political wonks like me a lot because it says a lot about where the country's going and what have you. What did you make of the decision and also the politics behind it? Because the delay during the David Cameron government was mostly due to internal Conservative Party wrangling. as a po- due to David Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't in- much wrangling at all. Indeed, because David Cameron stood up, I think, in 2009 and said, no ifs, no buts, no third runway at Heathrow. And then as soon as he got into government, that then started to become softer. There was the airport commission for three years then there were further delays on all that so where are the politics at now and what do you make of the decision i think the politics are more significant than the practical implications because it's not an absolutely definitive thing that heathrow will be expanded although i agree with julian it's more likely to than not the politics are much more definitive because it's a statement in favor of business in favor of 
economic openness and competitiveness from a prime minister whose first four or five months have leaned in the opposite direction. She's taken a lot of criticism for her attitude towards migrants, even skilled migrants, her attitude to foreign takeovers over Hinckley. Theresa May needed something to demonstrate goodwill on the subject of economic openness. And this will be noticed everywhere because it's been a live subject for 20, 30 years. And it contrasts well with David Cameron's own intransigence on the subject. And it is true, as Julian said, that almost everyone in his top table did think that the Heathrow expansion was the least bad alternative, including his chancellor, George Osborne. But he was so uh, cowed by the, the promise he made back in 2009 that he was willing to take any amount of economic hits and business criticism to prevent going ahead with it. For Theresa May to say definitively, this is my preferred option, I think does take the edge off that anti-business image that she was building up in recent months. I think that's exactly right. I don't think she's taken the decision just in the last minute because it looks good for business. I think she's been carefully positioning herself to support Heathrow for some time. If you look at her recent correspondence with constituents, she always said, I'll wait for the airports commission. The stuff early on when she backed getting rid of the third runway proposed by Labour, well, everybody in the Conservative Party was saying that. There are ministers who planted apple trees in the path of the runway, and somebody went back the other day to look where the apple trees were, but it turned out they'd all been chopped down. Um, <laughs> so everybody sort of has a mea culpa about being in a position that now looks silly. I think she assumes that we need to expand, and it's actually not that hard. If you have to have expansion, and you can debate whether expansion is necessary and whether carbon emissions allow that, but if you're have expansion, Heathrow is the right place. The immediate implication that we've had, Janelle, on the politics front is obviously a by-election, and this was promised by Zach Goldsmith, who's the maverick MP for Richmond Park, and he always said that I will not allow this to go through. He spent six years, and it's still going through, so he wasn't very successful in his campaign. And he's standing, it's unclear if he's standing as an independent or not, because his local association is supporting him, and his neighbouring Tory MP is also supporting him, and the Conservatives are not standing a candidate against him. UKIP aren't standing a candidate against him. Uh, so going to be a very interesting by-election. What do you think is going to happen? And, and on top of all that, I'm sure he'll end up voting with the Tories nine times out of ten in Parliament anyway. To the extent that he rebels, he has rebelled in the past over various things. I find it surprising that Theresa May would not field a candidate against him. I can see the logic in that you don't want an internal row. You don't want to aggravate anti-Heathrow people even more than you already have done by taking your policy decision. Does it not convey a bit of weakness four or five months into your premiership when you've got a majority of 12 effectively 15 or 16 that you're choosing to essentially give up a parliamentary constituency and do a favour for someone who has been a thorn in your side over this subject. Well Jeanette's got a point but of course it conveys greater weakness to lose the by-election and we've had one public poll on the election recently but I suspect the Conservative Party has carried out several private polls ahead and Zach versus a Tory versus a Lib Dem might not have turned out quite so well so a short-term embarrassment versus defeat perhaps. Secondly people like Theresa May will remember David Davis now back in the cabinet but David Davis by-election when he in a fit of pique decided to resign over something we can't quite remember and civil ran liberties I ran, believe. civil yeah. liberties that's right well that went really well he ran against himself and nobody turned up and it was quite weird and actually it became a media damp script not quite the same in London because it's much easier to get there on the tube and journalists will love going to Richmond rather than going to Beverly but nonetheless you do diminish the whole impact if it isn't a proper contest unless yeah. the Lib Dems win it's true unless the precedent is established to every other wavering slightly disloyal Tory MP that you can chance your arm and count on not being contested by your own party. I know the circumstances will vary, and not all of them can count on the personal support locally that Zach has. But Don Rumsfeld used to say weakness is provocative. But it's the weirdness of new politics. Everything's a referendum on something, so now even parliamentary elections are declared to be a referendum. Apparently Zach Goldsmith says this is a referendum on Heathrow and the expansion and the creation of the third runway. For that to be the case, there has to be an alternative on the ballots. And if the Tories aren't fielding one, and UKIP, who are anti-Heathrow expansion anyway, aren't fielding one, and presumably the Dems aren't going to be campaigning to build a third 
third runway. It's a referendum on nothing. I think it is going to be a referendum on Brexit, probably, because the fact is that Richmond roughly votes about 77% Remain. It's hard to break it down by constituency. That's where it's about. It's a very Remainy area, and Zach Goldsmith was a Brexiter, so the Lib Dems can make it about that. They can't argue about Heathrow because they've all agree on that. I suppose there is a possibility the Labour Party candidate may be pro-Heathrow expansion, but the constituency Labour Party in Richmond has been nowhere. They haven't got a candidate. They're not active at all. Um, do you think that could have any kind of impact on the wider debate, Julian, that if this becomes Lib Dems saying Zach Goldsmith, he ran quite a nasty London mayor campaign, which some said was racist. Um, he's driving towards a hard break that's going to destroy our economy. Vote for Lib Dems will be more effective than Zach was in stopping Heathrow. And we're also going to campaign to overturn the referendum result. I mean, in one way, it's a bit absurd that a small group of rich people in West London might be able to judge on Brexit when the nation voted. But actually, absurdity often is true in politics. And I think one of the things that's important is that the government recognises there's going to be quite a lot of people who cause trouble from what I would think is the sensible side, the people who actually think a hard Brexit was a mistake, and any Brexit probably is a mistake. Uh, some of those people are in the Conservative Party. Some of them are people like George Osborne, who's giving speeches mostly in America on this. A few parliamentary votes, that would add to the pressure. Nissan adds to the pressure. Uh, early on in Brexit, we saw a lot of, we've got to have a hard Brexit, we've got to get out. The people who wanted to remain were just shocked and didn't really know what to say. We're beginning to see demonstration of some practical consequences of letting those people down. A by-election could make a bit of a difference. In the end, it just gives the media a talking point. I think the there is a danger of over-interpreting the Richmond result to justify a bit of... Shock horror political r- journalists well, over-interpreting. There's a bit of that. And I, know, I know he's a sensational character and a famous individual, the, the local candidate, but I doubt aggrieved Remainers will gain much momentum even if they do pull off a Lib Dem victory in Richmond. And it's almost a parody of a constituency because it just allows the leavers to say, yeah, of course he won Richmond with its average house price of you know a million quid and uh, spectacular local scenery. They have to make ground in other bits of the country and I don't think this by-election will help them at all. What it won't be is a referendum on Heathrow. Partly, as Dylan said, there isn't a pro-Heathrow no. candidate. But also, Heathrow decision was made in the full knowledge that Zach didn't like it. There quite a lot of people in Richmond quietly actually use Heathrow and quite like having it nearby but don't want to talk about well, it too loudly. This is the thing that fascinates me about the locals. I think I saw a poll maybe a year ago saying that in the 10 constituencies nearest to Heathrow, there was overwhelming majority support for a third runway, apart from in one, which might have been Twickenham, I think. It was, yes. And it's for obvious reasons, which is that for the vast majority of people, Heathrow and a potentially bigger Heathrow means more commercial activity on the high street, the creation of more jobs, and not just a noisy plane every 65 seconds overhead. And it's obviously not just Richmond and Zach Goldsmith. There's other prominent people in the cabinet who are anti-Heathrow. And Theresa May has been very clever here with her softening of collective responsibility, not, uh, I wouldn't say abandoning it, in the way David Cameron did during the referendum that said, if you've got long-held views on Heathrow, you'll be allowed to repeat them, but you can't speak against the government in the House. You can't campaign against it. So essentially, she's muzzled both Boris Johnson, who represents Uxbridge, which is one of those seats where a lot of people are employed at Heathrow, and Justine Greening, the education. Secretary who's also anti-Heathrow in Putney. So the political opposition doesn't really seem that strong well, to it. I think this temporary suspension of cabinet collective responsibility is quite clever. I don't know why we're so hung up in this country about uh, collective responsibility in the first place. There should be some scope for dissent, even public dissent, as long as you're not actively trying to undermine the government decision. It makes sense in all respects apart from in one, which is Boris Johnson is foreign secretary. Part of his job is the drumming up of business and the promotion of Britain as an open place internationally. When he is in Singapore or Beijing or Washington or Sydney or wherever, and the locals say, isn't it fantastic that Heathrow is going to be expanded and we can put more flights through London and your country remains this global hub? What does he say? 
does he voice his disagreement and say it's a bad idea and I'm well, going to do... Remember, he said he's going to try and stop it still through the courts and he doesn't think it's going to happen anyway. So he's in a tougher fix, I think, than Justine Greening and some of the other notional opponents of his. There are many absurdities about having Boris Johnson as foreign secretary. <laughs> and this is just <laughs> one of them. And, it's and, number and, uh, 17. It's, num- it's, a, it's a certainly a long list of things he's embarrassed about saying. I think Boris Johnson privately doesn't really object to Heathrow. I think it's always been a bit of a show. He needed a thing to talk about. He was persuaded it early on. Even as mayor, he actually stayed away from the people who are really leading the estuary development team they found it quite hard to meet him. It was a convenient talking point for dinner parties, but I don't know how deep his concerns really are. But nonetheless, yeah, investors will be looking, and actually some of the foreign governments, Qatar in particular, which is a big holder in Heathrow at the moment, will be looking for certainty that if they put money in, the government will not suddenly change its mind and take it away again. What they will want to do is talk to Theresa May. That's what they wanted to do with David Cameron. They didn't want to meet any other ministers. That won't change. They're going to do a Nissan. They will do a Nissan. I mean, the lesson of this government is if you want anything done, go and see Theresa May and don't bother with the ministers. And very finally, Julian, I just want to ask you one last thing. You did a very good piece for the FT weekend a couple of weeks ago about infrastructure spending and development in the UK. The fact that it looks like Heathrow is going through, does that give you any kind of buoyance that we're going to get more infrastructure projects through, whether it's development at Gatwick or regional airports or HS3, all the things that people like me who really like building things would like to see happen but have never really happened due to politics, essentially. Do you think that this new government might have the drive to do that? There's a risk it's all sort of boys' toys and we like talking about trains and actually we've got to think about what's useful. But, well, more is going to happen. But the core question is, what does this infrastructure actually do? Politicians now like to talk about infrastructure. It's a horrible word, but they like to say it because it sort of sounds practical and get going and this country's going to get moving. I mean, China builds a lot of infrastructure, but most of it's completely useless and in the (laughs) wrong place. So actually, what matters is the quiet management of practical answers to real problems, things like sorting out the road system. I'm just running an economics prize on how to think about making roads work. Roads are not glamorous, but that's the kind of infrastructure we need to address. There are not many new runways you need. We've built one in Britain since the Second World War. If we can make it two since the Second World War, that's probably enough. And Spain, I think, is the European example of a country which, especially during the boom years, built a lot of gleaming infrastructure that turned out to be redundant or underused. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.